Well, if you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 30 in your Bibles. Exodus 30. That's where we are in our study of the book of Exodus. After a a couple weeks off, we're now making it to chapter 30. And as I studied this chapter this week, I thought of a conversation I actually had with Chase and Kristen when they were here. Somehow we got on, you know, discussion of what Albuquerque culture is like, and I'm not sure who brought up the topic, but uh, we were talking about the granola rating of our city. You know, how, how hipster is it? How hippie-ish is it? Uh, you know, are people at the church into homeopathic remedies? And, and, and I said, there are those here who are like that and some not. And, uh, some are into essential oils and some are into motor oil, okay? <laughs> And there's that whole world of things, whatever you want to call it, hippie, whole foods, granola, uh, alternative, homeopathic, whatever. Some of us are more into that sort of thing, and some of us are not into that sort of thing. And my point is not to be pro or con on any of those things, but just to talk about the disconnect that some of us have with those kind of granola people and that kind of stuff. For better or worse, some of us hear about people collecting various oils and even spending a lot of money on them, and and we just think, well, what's the point? What a waste. And if that's you, well, buckle up for Exodus 30, because it not only has oils in it, it has incense in it. Incense. The hippiest of all the, the sort of things out there, the, the most annoyingly hippie thing, if you ask me. <laughs> of course, the incense and oil of Exodus 30 isn't for health or isn't for well-being. It's, it's not just to make things smell better. This is all religious stuff. And that should probably make all of us a little more confused, uh, saying a little more. What's the point of all that? Oil and incense for religious purposes? Well, I'll tell you up front, I actually hope that none of you used oil or incense for religious purposes in the last week. And yet, here we have it in our Bibles. So how do we think about a whole chapter in the Bible that's devoted to the prescription for and even the ingredients of oil and incense used for religious purposes? Well, we have to first give full consideration to the Old Testament significance of these things, and and then we'll be able to consider the New Testament relevance of these things. And we should probably begin there with that fundamental point, especially for those who are not yet Christians, perhaps, not familiar with the Bible, perhaps. You should know there's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. It's not like two different books. It's one Bible, yes, but something like how a hinge works on a door. There's this side, there's this side. They work together. They don't quite do exactly the the same thing. There's symmetry, but there's difference and distinction. Well, that's what we have with our Bibles, and we'll see that quite a bit this morning as we go from Exodus 30 looking at its various components there. And in each case, we'll jump to the New Testament to see the significance of it there. Let's read Exodus 30 together. This is what God said to Moses on Mount Sinai one day. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. 
You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding, on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statue forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much. That is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all its utensils, and the lampstand, and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, with all of its utensils in the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured in the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you, whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacti, and anica, and galbanam, 
Sweet spices with pure fragrance. Of each shall there be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for, it shall be for you, holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. Well, quite a chapter, huh? It seems strange to us, no doubt. Uh, it helps, perhaps, to remember the context in which we find this strange chapter. Remember, in recent weeks, we've been studying Exodus, seeing God lay out the lengthy, detailed prescriptions and instructions for the temple, I'm sorry, for the tabernacle, that's Exodus 25 to 27, and then also the priesthood and the sacrifices that go with it. That's Exodus 28 to 29. Well, Exodus 30 assumes and builds upon everything we've talked about in the last couple of messages here. Remember, God is drawing near to his people. They will leave Mount Sinai, traveling in the wilderness for another generation, and God will travel with them. So God has to have a tent, the tabernacle. But because he's a holy God and they are sinful people, there's a bridge that's needed. In the priesthood and the sacrificial system, for a time, was that bridge. So with the purposes of the tabernacle in mind and with the provision of the priesthood now in place, we're ready with chapter 30 to get to some nitty-gritty. And we really do have some nitty-gritty here. I think it'll help us to just talk about four main headings. And in each case, as I said before, we'll work our way to the New Testament one at a time. The first is the aroma of incense. Incense is what's talked about in verses 1 to 10. Actually, it's also in the last five verses of the chapter, forming a bookend for the chapter and telling us a primary emphasis. There's the aroma of incense. It's in front of the veil, that veil that sections off the most holy place. Remember, the tabernacle had three sections, the outer court, the holy place, and then the most holy place. The veil sectioned off the most holy place. And in front of that, there would be placed an altar where incense would be burned morning and evening every day. Why? Well, scholars debate the significance of the incense. We're not told exactly here in this passage why they're to burn incense there on the altar. So some scholars think that the smoke coming off the incense symbolizes God's presence. Others would say that the smoke in front of the veil is another kind of layer of protection from God's presence. Others would just say it's practical. In this place where sacrifices are being made and things are being burnt, it should smell better than it normally would. And so burn some incense. Well, I don't think any of those is the right one. I think what we see in the New Testament helps us understand the incense of Exodus 3, Exodus 30. Like in Luke 1, where we're told that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was a priest. And 
One day, he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. There's a subtle connection there between incense and prayer. And if that were our only passage about it, then we still may not be clear. But we have Revelation 5 where John had that symbol-laden vision of heaven and saw four living creatures and the 24 elders falling down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And again in chapter 8 of Revelation, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So apparently there's a connection between prayer and incense. And I think the connection is this. The smoke arises from the incense as a physical representation of the prayers that were being made, presumably at the same time. That's part of the priestly duty. Sacrifices, yes. Offerings, sure. Maintenance of the place, yes indeed. But also praying. So this was a reminder to the priests that like smoke, rises their prayers go up to God their prayers are heard they're not only heard but God is pleased to hear their prayers there's that idea of it being a fragrant aroma it's pleasing to the Lord is the phrase all throughout Leviticus so on the one hand they can't monkey around with this stuff In fact, we'll see several warnings in our passage about not messing up with what God has described and prescribed for them. But but on the other hand, with the God-given ingredients in place, the overarching message was one of welcome, of comfort, of assurance, of, of invitation to come, to pray for priests to do what priests are supposed to do. To represent the people before the Lord, this they should know, not only goes up to God, but it's pleasant and fragrant before God. Now before you rush out to your nearest retailer to pick up some new incense sticks, in hopes of that reinvigorating your prayer life as you watch the smoke waft up in the air and are encouraged that yes, your prayers go up to God, hold up. Because incense and aromas, those kind of things, don't come over to the New Testament in a straight line. You see, in the New Testament, we're never encouraged to burn something to assure ourselves that our prayers are heard. We actually have more data than that now. We have something better now, something more substantial than smoke rising now. In the New Testament, the basis for and the motivation for our prayers is Jesus Christ. And so we don't need to look at smoke rising to be encouraged to pray. If we lack motivation to pray, we'll think on Hebrews 4 
in him being a sympathetic, sinless high priest who intercedes for us now, that's your reason to pray. Think of his, think of his time in the garden, his anguish. He sweat as though drops of blood. He prayed for us in the upper room, John 17. There's reason to pray. Think about the cross. Think about the resurrection and what that provided. Think of the access that he grants. Even think upon his ascension, that he went up to God and now reigns on high over all of God's creation. That's reason to pray. In other words, Look to the scriptures and the full scope of the scriptures for reasons and motivation to pray. Yes, look back to that Old Testament imagery of smoke rising, but not to imitate the imagery all over again. Now to see instead the effect that Christ has upon our prayers and how our prayers rise up even more freely and more pleasantly to God than any priest of the old covenant could ever imagine. Well, back to Exodus 30 now for our second heading, washing with water. Verse 17 to 21, talk about this basin and washing for water. Notice we've skipped verses 11 to 16 for now. We'll come back to that passage and other passages that have to do with giving and money. We'll deal with those in a later week. Suffice it to say for now, verses 11 to 16 are here because all this needs to get paid for somehow. These priests are not doing this volunteer. This isn't their hobby. This is their full-time job. They need to be supported. The tabernacle needs upkeep. These things are getting burned and used up and sacrificed. Eventually, there needs restocking. Well, that's what verses 11 to 16 spell out. But now on to verse 17 to 20, 21. It's a section devoted to the washing of the hands and the feet of the priests before they do any of their priestly duties. And washing, of course, isn't for hygiene or respect. This is ceremonial washing signifying their need for cleansing. And top-to-bottom cleansing, you could say. Hands to feet. That, that represents the whole. Hands and feet. What they do needs cleansing. And this is with priests, mind you. These priests who, whose ordination took a week. Every single day for seven days, they had a ritual, rituals of washing and cleansing and being clothed. And these priests need constant cleansing before the Lord before they can come into his presence to do his work. It's serious business. Twice, verse 20 and 21, we're told that if they don't wash their hands and their feet, they'll die. They'll die. Now, Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is a passage that not only shows the necessity of purity for anyone coming into God's presence, but also hints at a greater solution than the meticulous, twice-daily routine of washing of the priests. So Psalm 24 asks the question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who has the right to go into God's presence? 
Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That's who can come in. Pure hearts, clean hands, purified mouths or pure mouths. And if we read that and think, oh boy, to come into God's presence takes that, well, I should probably wash up, spiritually speaking. I should probably watch my heart more than I do. I should probably not lie as much as I do. If we think that, then we've missed the point of the psalm. Because a few verses later, the announcement is made. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. That's who can come in to God's presence, the king of glory. And George Friedrich Handel, in his famous Messiah, which many of us play at Christmas time, rightfully borrows the language of Psalm 24 as he sings about Christ's first coming. He alone, he alone in all of humanity has clean hands, a pure heart, and has not practiced any deceit. So we could say, Christ comes clean. He comes clean and he makes clean. He comes clean and he makes clean. You see that in the gospel accounts as Jesus interacts with, with people who are what we call ceremonially unclean. And he heals them. He heals them by touching them. So that their uncleanness did not get transferred to him as had happened in every other human being who had touched something unclean before. But no, his cleanness is so clean, so powerful, that his cleanness makes them clean. You see this in the language in the rest of the New Testament. The language for salvation at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, it was decided that Gentiles are saved. Those who believe on Jesus are saved, they're forgiven. They are, it says, cleansed. Acts 15, 9, God cleansed their hearts by faith. They're clean. They weren't born clean. No one but Jesus was. But they have been cleansed. Hebrews 10 encourages us to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Or also in Revelation 7 where John saw those who had washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's irony there. It's not... It's not wrong, right? It's, it's not impossible. It, it is thinking in physical terms. How do you make something white with blood? You don't. But this is purposeful, poetic irony. This is the only way we're made white. This is the only way we're clothed in God's righteousness. It's through the blood of the Lamb, the, the death of Christ. And so with this, like with the incense, we're not now to wash up in order to become spiritually clean. 
We didn't enter this room like you would find in a Roman Catholic church and dip a finger into a, a, a basin of holy water and apply it somewhere to our bodies as if that did anything. It doesn't. We need something more. We need something more than what the priest said. We certainly need something more than what Rome provides. We need Jesus. The Old Testament was a foreshadow of something much better. It had its purpose. It was good in its time. It had divine purposes, no doubt. And it made clear what the need was. Cleansing, even of priests. Constant cleansing. And it pointed to the possibility of something greater later on. A true cleansing. But that true cleansing has now come in Christ, who comes clean and makes clean. So if you haven't come to believe that yet, maybe you're hung up on whether you're unclean. Maybe you think you're pretty good and that's the standard for God. It's not. You see, every time we go astray from God, every time we put ourselves on a proverbial throne in our lives instead of him, we've all done that countless times. Who knows? Those are marks of our uncleanness, what we are by nature and what we do. We need cleansing and only Jesus can bring it. No ritual can bring it. Nothing. Not improvement. Only Jesus. So we pray today that you would just acknowledge your uncleanness and come to believe that Jesus makes clean by his righteousness and his sacrifice. Back to Exodus 30 once again. And thirdly, we come to Anointing with oil. Anointing with oil. Verses 22 to 33 give us the ingredients for a special oil that was to be applied on both the place and the priests. The place being the tabernacle and all its instruments and utensils and furniture. That's verses 26 to 28. But then this oil is also to be applied to the priests. And here we're actually told explicitly why, what this is for, and what it signifies. So verse 29, it consecrates the place and the priests. And that means it sets them apart. It sets them apart for holy use. This oil, God says, is special oil, not to be used for common use. It smells good, it works but no matter how much Aaron's wife likes that smell of the oil down at the tabernacle, Aaron can't give it to his wife as a birthday present. Here, honey, I got you some tabernacle perfume. Aaron's wife can't sell it to her friends. No, this is special oil because this is special work. These are special people because they're doing special work on God's behalf for the people. Now when we come to the New Testament with these themes and ideas, this physical, tangible thing of oil being poured on people and things, that all gets transformed. For one, anointing in the New Testament is no longer limited to a tabernacle and priests, but now it is to go on everyone all the people of God. So Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 1, 
God establishes us and has anointed us, us, all of us, and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts. So it's no longer external like it was in the old days. Now it's internal. It's inside. John writes this in his first letter. You've been anointed by the Holy One, and that anointing you received from him abides in you. It stays. It sticks. It's internal. And because of this anointing, we could say every Christian is now a priest. You might say, I don't want to be a priest. I don't even want to be a pastor. I don't want to be anything. But, but you are. You are. According to 1 Peter, you are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. So you're like a tabernacle or a temple for God's presence. But you're also to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He goes on a few verses later. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what does it mean that every Christian is a priest? What are we to do with that? What, what do we do about that? Well, think of what priests, even in the old days, would do. They would draw near to God. They were in close proximity to his presence. They were right there, more than the other people. They had direct access to him. Uh, yes, limitations, sure, but now in the new covenant, Christians have direct access to God, kind of like the high priest did on just one day, the year of the Day of Atonement. We come through Jesus the mediator to the presence of God directly. No mediation. No priests making sacrifices for us on our behalf or making prayers for us on our behalf. No. We have God Right up close, we could say. Right in our hearts, we could say. And being a priest means we've been set apart for his special work. Now, God doesn't use every Christian the same way. Not every one of us is called to do exactly the same thing. But it is true that every Christian, every priest, has been anointed by God, set apart for holy use, for special things, for his work. And we're also a go-between, we could say. An intermediate, a mediator of sorts between God and the world. At least verbally, as we pray for the world and, and as we represent God to the world when we give the gospel. Remember, Peter said, you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. That's part of being a priest. So Christian, this is you. It's not a matter of if you are a priest or if you have these assignments if you're a Christian. It's whether you're actually doing them. It's whether you're actually living them. It's whether you're actually being purposeful about the employment of your priesthood with God's anointing. Now hold that thought and we'll go back to Exodus 30 one more time before we go back to the New Testament one more time. So fourthly, the last five verses or so, we could call it putting it all together. 
It's putting it all together. As we come back to the incense where our chapter began, God now spells out quite literally how to put it all together. He gives the, the recipe, verse 34 to 35, for this incense. The location of its burning is reiterated here. It's stated, verse 37, this shall be holy to the Lord. What may seem to us like such a small thing, the burning of incense, and what may seem to us to be such small, petty details, many of which we're not even really discussing this morning, like, like the ingredients and their amounts and the processes for putting them together and who puts them together and, and where it's to be placed, all of that is, God says, holy to the Lord. So before we too quickly dismiss all this as archaic or silly or useless or even because we're New Testament Christians, we might be tempted to think it's, it's irrelevant. Well, recall the warning, warnings throughout our passage. Recall that the priests must wash hands and feet lest they die. Recall that, that strong admonition in verse 9. God says you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it. Don't monkey around with the ingredients. Don't just burn anything. Don't do any kind of offering you want to do on this altar. No unauthorized incense. If we know how the story of Exodus unfolds into the book of Leviticus... We might at this point recall Leviticus 10 and that story of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons who were also priests. Leviticus 10, we read that one day each took his censer, he put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And we don't know exactly what they toyed with we don't know exactly what they what they offered before the Lord but it wasn't what God said and what happened and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord well is this some sort of petty God is this, is this some sort of short tempered God God explained in the next verse, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified or considered holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. No unauthorized fire. That's why it was so grievous and problematic in days later on when it wasn't just one or two priests monkeying with the ingredients one day like Nadab and Abihu did. But later on, when there was a whole priestly system that had fallen corrupt, they were corrupt, careless, and unconcerned. And that's actually how the Old Testament ends. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. The book of Malachi mostly just bemoans the corruption of Israel's priests. 
So listen to this, Malachi 1, verse 10. God says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors of the temple, that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. But then in verse 11, there's a shift. There's a hopeful note. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations. What is this? How would one begin to understand that in the days of Malachi? How enigmatic would it be for the average Israelite or priest to hear of incense being offered, not by priests in the temple or tabernacle, but now by everyone, everywhere, anyone, nations even, non-Israelites. Well, when we come to the New Testament, it begins to make sense, doesn't it? In the New Testament... Promises like Malachi 1.11 and imagery and language like that of burning and sacrifice and washing and priesthood and anointing all becomes clear. The pieces fall into place. It's as if the Old Testament is made up of many different tributaries or streams that flow into one river, Jesus It all flows into him. He fulfills it all. Jesus says all that, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms was about me. We've been seeing that in weeks past, especially in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews makes so clear that Jesus is the final priest, the final sacrifice, the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice. He made a way to God that goes all the way and for good. But the language of aroma and offering is also used for Christ. Ephesians 5 verse 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, all the streams of the Old Testament run through the river of Jesus, specifically his life, death, and resurrection. And get this, it's as if that that river on the other side, it doesn't just stop, it's not just stagnant, it, it flows into a bunch of new tributaries, streams. You could draw that if you want. If you're a note taker, just try to draw something like what my hands are doing. As I'm looking at my hands, this is the Old Testament and this is the New. In in the Old Testament, many streams flowing into one river. But from that river flows many blessings, many fulfillments, many details and glories. And one more, we could consider that these streams on the other side actually swell and grow. I said in first service at this point, I don't know if that's hydrologically possible. But David Gregory told me it is hydrologically possible. So, so don't, don't, 
Don't judge the analogy. Either way. It swells on the other side. You see, here's our hinges. They go together, but they're not the same. The Old Testament streams are not irrelevant because there's correspondence on the other side. But what we have now running through the river of Christ and spanning out in all directions is glorious beyond comprehension. And the New Testament takes pains to explain it to us. Not only with Christ's death as an aroma to God that is pleasing. Not only our cleansing and our anointing and our priesthood as we saw from 1 Peter 2. But the list just keeps going on. The language of tabernacle rituals is all over the New Testament used in an analogical, transformed, heightened way. And this shows us the beauty of the Old Testament. I think it was last year that Andy Stanley, a well-known pastor and author in Atlanta, became rather famous or infamous for saying that the church needed to unhitch the faith from the Old Testament. He said the Old Testament is just getting in the way too much with non-Christians and skeptics. And, and you can start with Jesus. Just start with Jesus and go from there. Well, the problem with that is Jesus didn't start with Jesus. Jesus said all the scriptures are fulfilled in me. Jesus quoted the Old Testament. The apostles quoted the Old Testament. As I said, the language of tabernacle rituals, if you think they're embarrassing, well, they're all over the New Testament, so you can't do a New Testament-only Bible. We see it in the proclamation of the gospel. So 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says that through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Christians smell is what this passage says. They do. And those who are being saved, those who are being drawn in by God, hear a Christian speak about Christ and they say, that smells pretty good. I want, in, I want in on that. And no surprise, if you've been a Christian for a while, there are plenty of people who hear that and they say, that stuff stinks. You stink. We've been told. We've been told this would happen. In Romans 15, Paul can describe himself as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. Well, there's Malachi 1 in action. There's God's name being great among the nations, incense being offered to God in every place, acceptable to God. Among the Gentiles, on account of Paul's priestly service to go between and get the gospel to them, this is seen in our praise, our praise in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. We're encouraged to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Not just praise, but a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
when we came together this morning to sing, to pray, to confess that he is the Lord and there's none besides him, what we were praising him. It is sacrifice. It is pleasing to him on account of Christ. Our whole lives, not just here and now, but our whole lives all through the week, even our very bodies, according to Paul in Romans 12, are to be living sacrifices. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Even something like missionary support, financial support to missionaries, takes this language of aroma and offering. So when the Philippian church sent financial support to Paul for his mission and sent it through one of their messengers, one of their own members, a man named Epaphroditus, who, who almost died to get the money to Paul for the support on the mission field. Paul can say in Philippians 4.18, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Hebrews 13, last one. Hebrews 13 says we should do good and share with others with what we have. This is a pleasing sacrifice to God. You see, there's a beauty to all this. Our God is not just a commandment-only kind of God. Our gospel is not just a, all right, you're forgiven, and that's that kind of gospel. God has purposes to display his glory and his beauty in these ways of, get this, of sights and smells. And so even in the mundane of our lives, even in the simplest of things, if done to the glory of God, there is beauty in it. God takes pleasure in it. It's an aroma that sometimes fills a room and goes right up to heaven. So meeting with the church this morning as we've done to give God his praise, to confess to him, to pray to him, oh, that is... That is the fruit of our lips offered to God as a sacrifice. And he likes it. Getting to tell someone who isn't a Christian what the gospel is and how they can be saved. You might do it clumsily. They might ask you a question that you can't answer. But if you do it, it is priestly work intercession work between God and human beings and they might be saved God is up to this he's doing this thing of spreading the gospel in this world yes you might encounter those more often that say that stinks and you stink but sometimes we encounter those who say I think that smells good I want in even contributing financially to the local church, the writing of a check to give in support of the kingdom spreading and being sustained. There's a beauty to all that. Let's embrace it. It's fragrant to God. It's pleasing to the Lord. Or even the simple refraining from sin 
on account of Romans 12.1. Maybe this week, on account of Romans 12.1, you'll just say no to that sin, whatever that sin is for you. You just say, a daily sacrifice wouldn't do that. A living sacrifice means I live for him. That would smell good. So I ask you, how do you smell? How do you smell? What's the aroma of your life? I didn't ask if it's easy or hard right now, but what is being given off? May it be a pleasing aroma to the Lord, even in simple and routine things done to his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. It is big. It is thorough. It is both complex and simple. It is majestic because it represents and communicates to us a majestic, glorious God. We thank you for your plan of salvation. Everyone in this room who is saved, I'm sure, is thankful. Thankful for your salvation in Christ. Lord, we're thankful to live on this side of the cross and resurrection and thankful to have the New Testament as we do. We pray, Lord, that we would bring it to others. We would take it to the world. We pray we would read it often and read it with those who don't yet know it. Lord, we pray for those with us who haven't yet come to believe this stuff and maybe today they're beginning to think that maybe Christians don't stink as much as they used to think. Perhaps today you would even give them an appetite, a a sense that you, Lord Jesus, you are an aroma that is pleasing because of your salvation. We ask you, Lord, to teach, to encourage and instruct and equip us for the work of head. And and we ask that you you would encourage us as we sing about that work now. In Jesus' name.